Well, if you've lived in this country for very long at all, you've no doubt heard this saying or read this bumper sticker. I apologize to you in advance if it's on your car out there in the parking lot. We've all seen that bumper sticker, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. There is a lot of truth to that. No doubt it's meant to clear up any misconception that non-Christians would have about whether Christians think they're perfect uh, or think that they can be perfect. Indeed, we're not perfect. Even though by grace, yes, we are forgiven by God. Two truths, both true. Christianity begins with receiving forgiveness, not with becoming righteous. That's a great thing about that, saying Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. We are people, in fact, who have come to know and confess our grave imperfection, right? But there are some possible shortcomings with this famous line. Might it hint at some triteness about forgiveness? We're just forgiven. Why is the just in there? It might be too trite about our imperfections. Christians aren't perfect, sort of just roll the shoulders and smile. It could infer a kind of fatalistic apathy. Oh well, Christians aren't perfect. Christians should never respond to their own sin by just saying, oh well, Christians aren't perfect. It's a truncated view of the Christian life, too, if we believe that we're just forgiven. That is not the sum total of God's redeeming work in Christ. In the grand scheme of things, Christians are not just forgiven. Hold that thought for just a minute. I'll come back to it. I said already, on Sunday, we were in 1 Samuel 30, and we've been learning that this was one of David's low points. He grew weary of running and and trusting the Lord, being in constant danger. And those weary moments gave way to new doubts. So he spent 16 months in Philistine country doing some rather shady things, all in the name of survival, uh, in self-preservation. He was rescued by God in spite of himself. And as he returned home with his men, uh, it wasn't all good news. They returned to a burned town, everything taken, including wives and children. David and his men wept until they had no more strength to weep anymore. And coming to the very brink of things, David's men entered, entertained the possibility of stoning their king. But it was just then that David removed his breastplate and showed a t-shirt that he was wearing. He looked down at it and he smiled and he read it to the men as they could read it themselves and it said, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. And the men smiled back and all was well. Well, of course, that's not true. The reason I mention that is, would that saying, Christians aren't perfect, fit that sad occasion? Would that have been the, the fitting word at that moment? No, it would not. Instead, we read in 1 Samuel 30, verse 6, that when facing these heart-wrenching consequences of his own sin and doubt, David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. 
And no doubt that involved repentance, remembrance, restoration, and resolve for ours. I didn't think of that before Sunday. I thought of it today. For ours, to summarize the, that phrase, David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. That had to include repentance, remembrance, restoration, and resolve. But back to New Testament times. Christians are those who are forgiven of their past, present, and future sins, and Christians are those who strengthen themselves in the Lord their God. Not perfectly so, not consistently so, not constantly, and not easily. But nevertheless, Christians are those who are strengthened. They're growing in the Lord. Half of Paul's missionary work was strengthening believers and strengthening churches. We're used to thinking of Paul as the, the frontier missionary who goes and preaches the gospel and gets a church started and heads out of town. But half the time he was heading back through those towns and among those churches to strengthen them. In Acts 14, he was strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. Acts 18 says he went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia in Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. And he prayed for the Colossians in chapter 1 that they be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. But it's Paul's personal testimony in Philippians 3 that I want to draw our attention to tonight. Philippians 3, if you have a Bible with you. Here Paul is powerfully autobiographical as he tries to teach the Philippians, and by extension us, 2,000 years later, two primary things. One, Paul learned to rest in Christ's perfect righteousness. And two, Paul remained restless for more of Christ. The first tells us that he was gloriously forgiven. The second tells us that he didn't want to be just forgiven. So let's take the first of these. Paul learned to rest in Christ's perfect righteousness. Let's start reading in verse 4, picking up in the middle of a sentence here. He's been warning about false teachers in the previous verses, and now he's going to contrast that false teaching with what he used to believe and what he now believes. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Here's his resume, spiritually speaking. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. 
Paul learned to rest in Christ's perfect righteousness. Before that, he had to learn the severity of his own imperfection. Those things in verses 4 and 5 and 6 that he thought were gains in his standing before God, he came to see they were actually losses before God because he was trusting in them. He had to count them as losses. It has tax language all over it, doesn't it? In fact, embracing Christ also meant that he literally did lose these things. He lost something of his Jewish identity in a sense. He lost his job as a Pharisee. He lost his income as a professional theologian, if you want to put it that way. He lost all kinds of things. He lost favor. He lost friends. He lost so much. He had to come up, well, Jesus had to show him a different economy. What looks like gain is actually loss if we trust in it. And he came to see that Christ is gain when we realize those so-called gains are actually losses and see that Christ is surpassingly excellent. Verse 9 is so clear and decisive here. He says that I may gain Christ and be found in him, in him, wrapped up in him, in his identity, in his work, in his person. That means not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. doesn't mean not caring about righteousness as a Christian. We'll see that in the next section here. But it does mean not having a righteousness of your own that you stand upon in your standing before God. Not one that comes from the doing of the law. But that which is received through faith, that which is in Christ... That righteousness which is from God and depends only upon faith, depends only upon trust. That's the first section here. Now I want to take some pastoral liberty and move on to, to give more focus to the, the rest of this chapter. Over the years, we have uh, spent a lot of time in the first chapter of the first half of Philippians 3. And less so in the second half of this chapter. Of course, we need both, don't we? So with this in mind, that I think we know quite well that Paul learned to rest in Christ's perfect righteousness. Let's move on to what follows where Paul remained restless for more of Christ. He remained restless for more of Christ. Now here's the goal of what we read in the previous section counting our own deeds as rubbish, through faith, counting Christ as our righteousness? What's the goal of that? Well, we already read something of it in verse 8. Look at verse 8. Two times it's stated, because of the surpassing worth of being forgiven? No, it says, knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. It says at the end of verse 8, in order that I may gain Christ. Not gain a Christ ticket, but gain Christ himself. And now Paul returns to that same kind of theme in greater detail in verses 10 and 11. Notice it's that I may. You keep seeing that, that by any means. He's giving us reasons here, goals. That I may know him, he says in verse 10, and the power of his resurrection, and 
may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. In this letter, he's already talked about how we're to be like Jesus in his death. In Philippians 2, he talked about this, right? Don't do anything out of selfish motives, right? Instead, look out for the interests of others. Have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he goes from there. Paul says here he wants to become like Jesus in his death by sharing in his sufferings. Verse 11, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The final day, I want to be with him. I want to be raised like him. So do you see how personal this is for Paul? Do you see how personal this is? Do you see that Jesus here isn't just the means of forgiveness, forgiveness is the means of getting Christ. He said earlier in this book, in chapter one, for me to live is Christ, and hence dying is gain. To live is Christ, that means it's about communion. It's knowing him, it's becoming like him. All this implies something of imitation, being like him in his death about conformity, sharing in his sufferings. It's extraordinarily personal. And we might wonder at this point, we might want to ask Paul as he says these lofty words in verse 10 and 11, how's that going? Has that already happened? Are these things in the now or the past and now? Didn't you already gain Christ? Do you know him now? Do you know something anyway of his resurrection power working on your behalf? You say in other places, that resurrection power is what's at work in us. Paul, you've shared in Jesus' sufferings, right? You're writing this from a Roman prison. You've given us multiple times a description of of your suffering for Christ and for his cause in this world. Are you like him in his sufferings? You're the one that taught the Philippians in chapter 2 to be like Jesus in your selflessness and sacrifice. Surely you know something of Jesus' selflessness and sacrifice as you wrote to exhort them of that? Well, Paul answers these kind of questions, we might say, in the next verses. Look at verse 12 and following. Not that I have already obtained this, This is like an arrow pointing upwards, by the way. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He repeats himself. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Twice Paul insists that those holy aspirations back in verses 8 through 11, those holy aspirations are not yet. They're not yet. He has not yet obtained. That's the language of verse 12. Verse 13, he's not yet. These things are not yet his own. That's the language there, verse 13. But, verse 12, he says, I press on to make it my own. 
Notice that Paul is very honest here, very accurate in describing himself, but he's no defeatist. His honesty about his shortcomings doesn't mean he's defeated, doesn't care. He presses on to make it my own. The Greek language here is hard to capture in English. Apparently, this is a military illusion here when Paul says, I aim to make it my own. It refers to an army's pursuit and seizure of the enemy. It's about capturing, pursuing, and capturing. That's violent, isn't it? That's aggressive. That, that's that's. That's very vigorous. And that's what Paul says about Christ, that he's on the hunt for more of Christ. He's on the run and wanting to capture more of Christ. He's wanting to get hold of more of Jesus. It's aggressive. It's violent. It's at any cost kind of language. I must get hold of more and more. Why? He says in verse 12, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. It's the same Greek language that hints at military conquest and seizing. Jesus has seized me. Therefore, I want to seize more of him. He has apprehended me. I must apprehend more of him. He's captured me. I must capture more of him. And indeed, the Lord Jesus did capture Paul. In that famous day in Acts 9 on the road to Demaeus, when the Lord Jesus showed up in bright, blinding glory and spoke to Saul, he was captured that day. The Lord seized him. And believer, if the Lord Jesus has seized you, you know what that means, right? If he's called you, if he's drawn you to himself, if he's given you faith and granted you repentance, if you're his, then by all means, make him yours more and more. If he has seized you, by all means, make it your ambition to seize him daily. Daily. It's an ongoing thing. Then for powerful effect, Paul mixes metaphors in verse 13 as he looks to Olympic runners for imagery. On the one hand, he says the Christian life is like a, a like the pursuit and capture that happens on the battlefield. But it's also like a runner's race. So you see in the second half of verse 13, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What is it that lies ahead? What is it that is the tape of the finish line? Well, in a word, it's Christ. That's what we saw in verse 8, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And that's what it's referring to in verse 14, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. No doubt this relates something to 
the end of days, the very last days when there's a resurrection from the dead, and all believers are with the Lord Jesus. It's an upward call. That's a prize of that upward call. And yet Paul says it's something he's pursuing daily. How? How does Paul pursue this goal, this prize of Christ? Verse 13, he says, he forgets what lies behind. Some scholars say that this means Paul forgets his past failures, forgets his history, forgets his B.C., before Christ years. No doubt that's true. He'd have to do that, right? There is a kind of looming, bad, wrong guilt where there needs to be some sort of Godward past forgetfulness, you could say. Yesteryear amnesia, spiritually speaking. Other scholars say that this is Paul saying he forgets successes. You can't live on yesterday's graces, right? It's true. You do need to forget how many Bible verses you memorized back in 10th grade or something. Because chances are you've forgotten them and, and they may not be doing you any good now, right? Choose this day whom you will serve. While it's still today, seek the Lord while he may be found. Encourage each other while it's still today, 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 today. We do need to forget what lies behind in our award ceremony, spiritually speaking. But I think this is probably more about the hindrance of looking back because of the necessity of looking forward. Now, how many of you ran track in high school? Any of you? And how many of you got in one race or another where you were close to someone at the very end? Maybe they were just a step or two behind you, a stride behind you. Don't you know, right, you're not supposed to look back at that moment, right? You look back and that guy's gone. You can't look back. You, you can listen for footsteps, but your eyes must be on the tape, on the finish line ahead. You look back, and you're not looking ahead. You've lost your stride. You've missed the goal. You've forgotten what the whole point is. It's, the race isn't that guy. The race is there. It's ahead. I think that's what Paul means here. The point isn't what's in the past. The point is, fix your eyes on what's ahead. Fix your eyes on Christ, the goal of the upward call that's in Christ Jesus. Straining forward to what lies ahead. That's why those two phrases should go together. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Pressing on toward that goal. When does this happen? While we're asking these why and what and how questions, let's nail this down a little more clearly. When does this happen? I've already hinted at it, but it's worth pointing out this has been a big emphasis for Paul thus far. The thing of Jesus' return, the last day. That's the upward call of God that Paul is talking about. I mean, after all, he said back in verse 11 that he will one day, he hopes, attain the resurrection from the dead. And that's when the perfect will come. And that's when Christ will be fully apprehended. And we know that the return of Christ is significant for Paul in these verses because he comes back to it in verse 20 and 21. Look there at the end of the chapter. He says, our citizenship is in heaven. And from heaven, we await a savior, 
the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Paul has his eyes on the coming day of the Lord's return when so many of these things will be granted and when the race will be won. That's the end of the tape, you could say. That's the finish line he has in mind. But don't misunderstand. Paul is not modeling for us here just a patient confidence regarding the future and the future of Jesus' return. He's not just saying, don't worry, wait it out. He's coming back and all things will change. No, remember, remember his language even now is is just filled with this restlessness. He's striving, he's he's straining. The words he uses about his resolve to pursue Christ now are, are put in the most aggressive terms and images imaginable. Olympic runners and soldiers who have to chase bad guys and get them. You see, here's the point. Neither the gift of the finished work of Christ in salvation nor the inevitable completion of that salvation at the coming of Christ creates a laxity now for Paul in his present state as he writes Philippians. In fact, Christ's perfect righteousness on our behalf as a gift and Christ's sure return in the future are powerful motivations for Paul to strive today. I wouldn't think that way. Left to myself, I would think, I got Jesus, I got forgiveness, I got his righteousness, it's settled. (laughs) And I'd coast. I'd coast. I think that's the sum total of the story. Or I'd hear of this great promise that, no, 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 this isn't the sum total of the story. One day he's coming back, and that's when everything gets fixed. That's when there's no more sin. That's when he transforms your body. That's when you'll see him, apprehend him, behold him. I'd hear that and I'd coast without the Bible telling me otherwise. I'd think, well, this life sucks and let's just wait it out and pray for his return. But that's not what Paul does. That's not what he does. He wants more of Christ. Now, neither is Paul's impending execution reason to coast. I would coast if I was in prison. Except for the grace of God, I would coast in prison. I'd think, I'm going to be with him soon. I'll get to see him soon. I don't need Bible. I'll get to see him. Not Paul. He's not content with the hope of transformation and conformity to Christ that happens either a day away in death or perhaps years and years and years away at Christ's return. Picture an Olympic athlete lunging for the tape at the end of the finish line. We've seen that before, right, especially in in sprints when the Olympics come on. He lunges for the tape as the pinnacle of effort at the end of the race. It's sort of like the exclamation mark on the race, right? You you can't do that at the beginning of the race. 
But Paul's talking about that for the whole race, isn't he? When he says, striving to reach and attain, straining forward to what lies ahead, he has this imagery in mind exactly. In one sense, Paul's at the end of his life and and perhaps could be thinking of lunging forward, but he's writing to Philippians as an example for them to follow. And so he's not just saying, when you're in prison someday, when you're on your deathbed someday, make it look like that. Lunge forward at the end because Christ is on the other side. Throw away all abandon right then because, well, you don't have anything else to live for. Now he's writing to them and he has modeled in the whole of his life to lunge for the tape with supreme exertion every day for the whole of life. And if you want to squabble with me and say, Ryan, I raced in high school or college and you can't do that. Well, I know, okay? I know how physics work. I know you can't do that for the whole race, but that's what Paul is getting at, even if it's a slightly imperfect illustration. Now go back to verse 17, a verse we skipped over because there's one other important important element to this race that's hinted at here in verse 17 where Paul says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. This hints at something that is everywhere in the book of Philippians. Fellowship. Partnership. Unity, serving each other, seeking each other's good. Here he's talking about himself and others being examples to the Philippians. But it should remind us, if we're familiar with the book of Philippians at all, that the book is about partnership in the gospel, fellowship in the gospel, about sharing Christ, sharing the body, sharing love, sharing with each other, sharing the mission together. So this reminds us that the battle we're talking about, this war, this capture of Christ, this striving for the goal of getting more of Christ is not an individual enterprise. He has not left us to ourselves. We have the Holy Spirit and we also have each other. We have the church. We're to help each other. We're to do it together. It's a partnership. We have examples and we're to be examples to each other. In sum, the race is personal. The tape is a person. Forgiveness is for the means of getting Christ. We'll get all of them at the end. And until then, we should seek him vehemently, violently. We should strive for more of Christ because this race is an ultimate race. Christ is of surpassing worth. Paul says, this one thing I do. And he says, for me to live is Christ. He's my breath. He's my heartbeat. He's my living and dying. Because it's ultimate, it's worth all our effort. Yes, this race will be an imperfect one for all of us. And hence, it's for all of life. That's part of the reason why you need to run tomorrow. Because you didn't run perfectly today. Or need to run not to compensate for yesterday's sins, failures. 
but we need to run still the same. And the race is not alone. We're, we're not in this alone, and we're not even competing with each other. That's, a, again, a place where the illustration breaks down a bit. We're racing with each other. This is more like a relay, except we're all doing it at the same time, and it's, you know, 500 people strong. It's not four or five. The race is also practical. For all this lofty talk about gaining Christ and getting Christ and, and apprehending Christ, wanting more of Christ, it may be possible to forget the simple means by which we do that today. We do that with Bible, right? We go to the Bible to behold Christ and to become more like him. We pray to him. We commune with him, not in some ethereal way as we walk around and feel like he's there, but we talk to him. He hears us. He intercedes for us. We worship. We meet together like this. We meet with the church. We commit to each other to help each other. We meet together to hear the preaching of his word and songs sung and, and these elements enjoyed to remind us of his broken body and spilled blood. Here we have a water break, you could say, in this race that's set before us, and it's one desperately needed. We need to remember Jesus in his death because we're forgetful, forgetful of all of the implications, forgetful of our need. We preach the gospel to ourselves at a time like this, we do it all through the month, but we do it at this time with, with something in hand. We do it with something visible before us. The elements themselves preach to us. They proclaim Jesus' death till he comes. As we gather and as we partake, we remember his promises. We remember in these elements that he has pledged himself to us. Isn't that remarkable? He has pledged himself with body and blood to us. He's made a covenant to do us good forever and ever. We remember in this partaking that he will return. We proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. One day he will come again and we will eat with him. We will celebrate with him. But even now, we commune with him. We commune with him in this meal. We commune with each other. It's a meal of fellowship, dare we say, between heaven and earth. This is a meal between heaven and earth. This is a dinner table with the lamb in a foreshadowed sort of way. Oh, we'll get a bigger one later to come. Yes, we'll sing about that at the end of our service today. But, but it's a foreshadow of that even now in this peasant meal, a sojourning meal, we sup with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We are with him. He is with us. He will do us good. He's committed body and blood to that.